Chapter Five of Raspberry Jam by Caroline Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The explanation. Just this, Mrs. Embry, the impossibility of my being blindfolded. As a matter of fact, it is practically impossible to blindfold anybody anyway. Why? What do you mean? interrupted Hendricks. Why is it? Because the natural formation of most people's noses allows them to see straight down beneath an ordinary bandage. I doubt if one child out of a hundred who plays blind man's buff is really unable to see at all. That's so, said Embry. When I played it as a kid, I could always see straight down, though not, of course, laterally. And noses are different, went on Hanlon. Some prominent peaks could never be blindfolded, but some small, flat noses might be. However, this refers to ordinary blindfolding with an ordinary handkerchief. When it comes to putting fat cotton pads in one's eye sockets, before the thick bandage is added, it necessitates previous preparation. So, my powers of contracting and expanding my forehead muscles allow me to push the pads out of the way and enable me to see straight down the sides of my nose from under the bandage. Of course, I can see only the ground, and that, but in a circumscribed area around my feet, but it's enough. How? asked Eunice, her piquant face eagerly turned to the speaker. How did you know which way to turn? I don't like it, declared Aunt Abby. I hate it. I'm absolutely disgusted with the whole performance. I detest practical jokes. Oh, come now, Miss Ames. And Hendricks chuckled. This isn't exactly a joke. It's a hoax, and a new one. But it's a legitimate game. From the Devonport brothers and Herman, on down through the line of lesser lights in the conjuring business. Even our own Houdini, we know there is a trick somewhere. The fun is in finding it. Handlin's is a new one and a gem. I don't even begin to see through it yet. Neither do I, agreed Mason Elliot. I think to do what he did by a trick is really more of a feat than to be led by a real thought transference. Except that the real thing isn't available, and trick work is. Hanlon smiled genially as he said this, and Embry, a little impatiently, urged him to go on, and begged the others to cease their interruptions. Well, Hanlon resumed, understand then that I cannot be really blindfolded. No committee of citizens, however determined, can bandage my eyes in such a manner 
that I can't wiggle my forehead about sufficiently to get the pads up or down or on one side or the other until I can see. All I want too. Hanlon knotted up his frontal muscles to prove that a bandage tied tightly would become loose when he relaxed the strain. Understand that I can see the ground only for a few inches directly at the front of me, or very close to my sides. That is all. Okay, said Hendricks. Now, with your sight assured for that very limited space, what is next? That, sir, is enough to explain the little game I put over in the newspaper office. Before trying the out-of-door test, you remember, ladies, Mr. Mortimer told you how I followed a choke line drawn on the floor and which led me up and down stairs, over chairs, under desks, and all that. Well, it was dead easy because I could see the line on the floor all the time. Their confidence in their secure blindfolding made them entirely unsuspicious of my ability to see. So that was easy. Clever, though, and Embry looked at young Handen with admiration. Simple, but most perfectly convincing. Yes, sir, it was the very simplicity of it that galled them and of course i am some actor i groped around and felt my way by chairs and railings and door frames though i needed have touched one of em my way was plainly marked and i could see the chalk line and all i had to do was to follow it but it was that preliminary test that fixed it in their minds about the willing business I kept asking the guide to keep his mind firmly on his efforts to will me. I begged him to use all his mental powers to keep me in the right direction. Oh, I have that poppycock all down fine, just as the mediums at the seance have. Aunt Abby sniffed disdainfully, and Embry chuckled at her expression. Though not a spiritualist, Miss Ames was greatly interested in telepathy and kindred subjects, and like all the apostles of such cults, she disliked to hear of frauds committed in their names. Go on, said Eunice, her eyes dancing with anticipation. I love a hoax of this sort, but I can't imagine yet how you did it. I understand about the blindfolding, though. And, of course, that was half the battle. It was, ma'am, and the other half was boots. Boots? Yes, ma'am. Do you know that you seldom see two pairs of boots or shoes alike on men? I thought they were all alike, exclaimed Eunice. I mean... All street shoes alike, and all pumps alike, and so forth. No, not that. And Embry laughed. But, I say, Hanlon, there are 
thousands of duplicates. Not so you would notice it, but let me explain. First, however, here are four men present. Let's compare our shoes. Eight feet were extended, and it was surprising to note the difference in footgear. Naturally, Hanlon's were of a cheaper grade than the others, but whereas it might have been expected that the three society men would wear almost identical boots, they were decidedly varied. Each pair was correct in style, and the work of the best bootmakers, but the difference in the design of tip, side cut, sole, and fastening was quite sufficient to prevent mistaking one for another. You see, said Hanlon, well, take a whole lot of your men friends, even if they all go to the same bootmaker, and you'll find as much difference. I don't mean that there are not thousands of shoes turned out in the same factory as alike as peas, but there is small chance of striking two pairs alike in any group of men. Then, too, there is the wear to be counted on. Suppose two of you men had bought shoes exactly alike. You wear them differently. One may run over his heel slightly. Another may stub out the toe. But these things are observable only to a trained eye. So... I trained my eye, I made a study of it, and now, if I see a shoe once, I never forget it, and never connect it with the wrong man. On the street, in the cars, everywhere I go, I look at shoes, or rather, I did when I was training for this stunt. It was fascinating, really. Why, sometimes the only identifying mark would be the places worn or rubbed by the bones of the man's foot. But it was there all samey, a nailum, every one. Oh, I didn't remember them all. That was only practice. But here's the application. When I started on that trip in Newark, I was introduced to Mr. Mortimer. Mind you, it was the first time I had ever laid eyes on the man. Well, unnoticed by anybody, of course, I caught on to his shoes. They were, probably, to other people, merely ordinary shoes. But to me, they were as a flaming beacon light. I stamped them on my memory, every detail of them. They were not brand new, for, of course, anybody would choose an easy old pair for that walk. So there were scratches, bumps, and worn, rubbed places that, with their general make-up, rendered them unmistakable to yours truly. Then I was ready. The earnest but easily gulled committee carefully adjusted their useless pads of cotton and their thick bandage over my eyes, and I was led forth to the fray. Remember, I asked Mr. Mortimer not only to think of the hidden pin-knife and will me toward it, but also to look toward it himself, 
Now, to look toward any object, a man usually turns his whole body in that direction, so groping about clumsily, I managed to get sight of the toes of those well-remembered boots. Seeing which way they were pointed was all the information I needed just then. So, with all sorts of hesitating movements and false starts, I finally trotted off in the direction he had faced. The rest is easy. Of course, coming to a corner, I was absolutely in the dark as to whether I was to turn or to keep straight ahead. This necessitated my turning back to Mr. Mortimer to catch a glimpse of which way his feet were pointing. I covered this by speaking to him, begging him to will me aright, to will me more earnestly, or some such bunk. I could invent many reasons for turning round, pretend I had lost my feelings of guidance, or pretend I heard a sudden noise, as of danger, or even pretend I felt I was going wrong. Well, I got a peek at those feet as often as was necessary, and the rest was just play-acting, to mislead the people's minds. Of course, when I stumbled over a stone, or nearly fell in a coal hole or grating, it was all pretense. I saw the pavements as well as anybody, and my effort was to seem unaware of what was coming. Had I carefully avoided obstacles, they would know I could see. And when you reach that vacant lot, prompted Eunice, I saw friend Mortimer's feet, were pointing toward the center of the lot, and not in the direction of either street. So I turned in, and when I got where I could see the burned-down house, I guessed that it was the hiding place, so I circled around it, urging my guide to look toward the place, and then noting his feet. I had to do a bit of scratching about, but remember, I could see perfectly, and I felt sure the knife was in the shard and blackened rubbish, so that I just hunted till I found it. That's all. Well, it does sound simple and easy as you tell it, but believe me, Handin, I appreciate the cleverness of the thing and the real work you went through in preparation for it all. Hendricks said heartily, and the other men added words of admiration and approval. But Miss Ames was distinctly displeased. I wouldn't mind if you'd advertised it as a trick, she said in an injured tone, as say the conjurers do such tricks, but everybody knows they are fooling their audience. It is expected. Yes, lady, Hanlon smiled. But the fake mediums and spirit raisers they don't say they are frauds, but they are. Sir, you don't know what you're talking about. Just because there are some tricksters in that, as in all professions, you must not denounce them all. They are all fakes, lady. And Hanlon's air of sincerity carried conviction 
to all but Aunt Abby. How do you know? she demanded angrily. I have looked into it. I have looked into all sorts of stunts like these. It's in my nature, I guess. And all professional mediums are frauds. You bank on that, ma'am. If you want to tip tables or run a Ouija board with some honest friends of yours, go ahead. But any man or woman who takes your money for showing you spiritual revelations of any sort is a fraud and a charlatan. There is no exception? asked Embry, quite surprised. Not among the professionals. They wouldn't keep on in their profession if they didn't put up the goods, and to do that, they have got to use the means. Why? Why, young man? cried Aunt Abby explosively. You just read the voice of Isis. You read. That's all right. There are plenty of fake books more probably than fake mediums. But you read some books that I recommend. You read Behind the Scenes with the Mediums or The Spirit World Unveiled and see where you are at then. No, ma'am. The only good spook is a dead spook and they don't come jolly riding back to earth. But, and Eunice gazed earnestly at her guest, is there nothing, nothing at all in telepathy? Now, you have asked a question, ma'am. I don't say there isn't, but I do say there isn't two percent of what the fakers claim there is. I will grant just about two percent of real stuff in this talk of telepathy and thought transference. And even that is mostly getting a letter the very day you were thinking about the writer. Embry laughed. That's as close as I've ever come to it, he said. Yup, that's the commonest stunt. That and the ghostly goodbye appearance of a friend that's dying at a time in a distant land. Aren't those cases ever true? Eunice asked. About two percent of them. Most of those that have been traced down to actual evidence have fizzled out. Well, I must be going. You see, now I have sold this whole spiel that I've just given you folks to a big newspaper syndicate, and I got well paid. That puts me on easy street for the time being and I'm going to practice up for a new stunt. When you hear again of Willie Hanlon, it will be in a very different line of goods. What? asked Eunice interestedly. Excuse me, ma'am, I'll tell you if I tell anybody, but you see, it ain't good business. I just thought up a new line of work, and I'm going to take time to perfect myself in it and then spring it on a long-suffering public. No, I won't ask you to tell, of course, Eunice agreed. But when you give an exhibition, if it's near New York, let me know 
won't you? Yes, ma'am, I sure will. And now I'll move on. Oh, no, you must wait for a cup of tea. We'll have it brought at once. Eunice left the room for a moment. Aunt Abby in dungeon refused to talk to the disappointing visitor, but the three men quickly engaged him in conversation, and Hanlon told some anecdotes of his past experiences that kept them interested. Ferdinand brought in the tea things, and Eunice, with her graceful hospitality, saw to it that her guest was in no way embarrassed or bothered by unaccustomed service. I've had a right good time, he said in his boyish way, as he rose to go. Thank you, ma'am, for the tea and things. I liked it all. His comprehensive glance that swept the room and its occupants was a sincere compliment, and after he had gone, there was only kindly comment on his personality, except for Aunt Abby. He's an ignorant bore, she announced. Now, now, objected Eunice, you only say that because he upset your favorite delusions. He punctured your bubbles and pulled down your air castles. Give it up, Aunt Abby. There is nothing in your voice of Isis racket. Permit me to be the judge of my own five senses, Eunice, if you please. That's just it, Miss Ames, spoke up Hendricks. Is your psychic information, or whatever it is, discernible to your five senses, or any of them? Of course, or how could I realize the presence of the psychic forces? I don't know just what those things are, but I supposed they were available only to a sort of sixth sense, or seventh. Why? I have five senses, but I don't lay claim to any more than that. You're a trifler, and I decline to discuss the subject seriously with you. You've always been a trifler, Alvid. Remember, I have known you from boyhood, and though you have a brilliant brain, you have not utilized it to the best advantage. Sorry, ma'am. And the handsome face put on a mock penitence. But I am too far advanced in years to pull up now. Nonsense! You're barely thirty. That's a young man. Not nowadays. They say after thirty. A man begins to fall to pieces mentally. Oh, Al, what nonsense! cried Eunice. Why, thirty isn't even far enough along to be called the prime of life. Oh, yes, it is, Eunice. In this day and generation, nobody thinks a man can do any great creative work after thirty. Inventing, you know, or art, or literature. Honestly, that's the attitude now, isn't it, Mason? 
Elliot looked serious. It is an opinion recently expressed by some big man, he admitted. But I don't subscribe to it. Why, I'd be sorry to think I'm down an outer, and I'm in the class with you and Embry. You're none of you in the sear and yellow, declared Eunice, laughing at the idea. Why, even Aunt Abby, in spite of the family record, is about as young as any of us. I know I am, said the old lady serenely, and I know more about my hobby of psych lore in a minute than you young things ever heard of in all your life, so don't attempt to tell me what's what. That's right, Miss Ames, you do. And Mason Elliot looked earnestly at her. I'm half inclined to go over to your side myself. Will you take me some time to one of your seances? But wait, I only want to go to one where, as you said, the psychic manifestations are perceptible to one or more of the five well-known senses. I don't want any of this talk of a mysterious sixth sense. Oh, Mason, I wish you would go with me. Madame Medora gives wonderful readings. Mason, I am ashamed of you, cried Eunice, laughing. Don't let him tease you, Aunt Abby. He doesn't mean a word, he says. Oh, but I do. I want to learn to read other people's thoughts. Not like our friend Handlin, but really, by means of my senses and brain. You prove you haven't any brain when you talk like that, put in Hendricks contemptuously. And you prove you haven't any sense, retorted Elliot. I say, who's for a walk? I have got to sweep the cobwebs out of the place where my brain ought to be, even if it is empty, as my learned colleague averse. I'll go, and Eunice jumped up. I want a breath of fresh air. Come along, Sam. Nexie, I've got to look over some papers in connection with my coming election as president of a big club. Your coming election may come when you are really in the prime of life. Hendricks laughed. Or perhaps not till you strike the sear and yellow. But if you refer to this year's campaign of the athletic club, Please speak of my coming election. Oh, you two deadly rivals, exclaimed Eunice. I'm glad to be out of it if you're going to talk about those eternal prize fights and club theatres. Come on, Mason. Let's go for a brisk walk in the park. Eunice went to her room and came back looking unusually beautiful in a new spring habit. The soft fawn color suited her dark type, and a sable scarf round her throat left exposed an adorable triangle of creamy white flesh. Get through with your squabbling, 
little boys she said gaily with a saucy smile at hendrix and a swift perfunctory kiss on embry's cheek and then she went away with mason elliot they walked a few blocks in silence and then elliot said abruptly what were you and sanford quarrelling about aren't you a little intrusive but a smile accompanied the words no eunice it isn't intrusion i have the right of an old friend more than a friend from my point of view and i ask only from the best and kindest motives could you explain some of those motives she tried to make her voice cold and distant but only succeeded in making it pathetic i could but i think it better wiser and more honourable not to you know dear why i want to know because i want you to be the happiest woman in the whole world and if sanford embry can't make you so nobody can she interrupted him quickly don't mason she turned a pleading look toward him don't say anything we may both regret you know how good sanford is to me you know how happy we are together were he corrected very gravely were and are she insisted and you know too no one better what a fiendish temper i have though i try my best to control it it breaks out now and then and i am helpless sanford thinks he can tame it by giving me as good as i send by playing as he calls it petruchio to my catherine but somehow i don't believe that's the treatment i need her dark eyes were wistful but she did not look at him of course it isn't elliot returned in a low voice i know your nature eunice have known it all our lives you need kindness when you are in a tantrum the outburst of temper you cannot help that i know positively they're an integral part of your nature but they are soon over often the fiercer they are the quicker they pass and if you were gently managed not brutally at the time they occur it would go far to help you to overcome them entirely but and i ask you again what were you discussing to-day when i came why do you want to know i think i do know and forgive me if i offend you i think i can help you what do you mean eunice looked up with a frightened stare don't look like that oh eunice don't i only meant i know you want money ready money let me give it to you or lend it to you do eunice darling thank you mason eunice 
forced herself to say, But I must refuse your offer. I think, I think we, we will go home now. End of chapter 5